This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The laughs will come later when we check into Madison High and see what's up with our Miss Rooks. But first, a walk on the dark side. In fact, the word dark is even in the title of the program we're about to hear. Dark Fantasy. It was an American radio supernatural thriller anthology series. Had a short run of 31 episodes, debuting November 14th of 1941 and ending on June 19th, 1942. Its writer was Scott Bishop also known for his work on The Mysterious Traveler. It originated from station WKY in Oklahoma City and was heard Friday nights on NBC stations. The stories found a nationwide audience almost immediately. There's no host, really, just announcer Keith Payton, who repeats the title of the series in a menacing voice. But even that is kind of fun because it implies the producer thought this series was so scary that just the mere mention of the name would be enough to get people nervous and in the right spooked mood. Dark Fantasy aired late on Friday night, well past the bedtimes of the little ones, which probably encouraged liberties with the dark nature of the storylines. Murder, drugs, thievery, being buried alive. The stories were usually quite imaginative. They were usually horror stories, but then there were also a few sci-fi themes, too. The writer, Scott Bishop, was certainly a capable author. He wrote all of the stories for this series and The Strange Dr. Karnak. He also contributed scripts to The Mysterious Traveler and The Sealed Book. Here's the episode entitled, I Am Your Brother, which first aired in 1942. appearance of bleeding some days following operation is of the utmost significance to the surgeon. There will almost invariably be a recurrence unless measures are taken to prevent it, and it will ultimately prove fatal. The vessels most commonly affected are the lingual, the facial, and the internal maxillary arteries, unless this offending vessel can be isolated. Mr. Briggs, it behooves me to pause in the middle of this lecture to remind you of one important thing. Apparently not important to you, but extremely important to me. I have been paid as high as $1,500 an hour for lecturing on the after-treatment of surgical patients. I lecture here for the college medical class free of charge. I at least expect the courtesy of attention. I do not expect my students to tabulate their meager bank accounts 
Well, I am making every effort to instill some portion of physical knowledge into their thick-covered craniums. I was making notes, Professor. Apparently. Mentally, you were tabulating your money in the bank. Gentlemen, I regret that the lecture this morning will not be continued. Dismissed. <laughs> Julius, is the lecture over so soon? Stupidity. Nothing but stupidity. Stupidity, Julius? Trying to teach those idiots the secrets of surgery is like trying to drill the Alzonian theory into a two-year-old. <laughs> Sit down, Julius. You're tired. I'm not tired. I'm simply exasperated. What's come over you, Julius? You've suddenly become so, well, so cantankerous ever since the death of Stephen Hamblin. I know, Carl, I know. He was very close to you, wasn't he? Close. I wonder if anyone knew how close. I wonder if anyone knew. You've known him ever since you was a boy. Yes, ever since he was a mere child. I remember when he first came here to the university. He didn't impress me as all the others did. There was no eagerness about him to learn. He seemed to have no ambitions to learn. Yet his grades were the highest that have ever been made in the history of our institution. Yes, just so. It's a pity that he had to die. Perhaps. Perhaps. Julius, all of us naturally expected you to be quite shocked to hear Stephen Hamblin's passing. But you fooled us completely. Well, you didn't seem the least bit startled when we broke the news to you. No, you... Well, you seemed almost, uh, almost glad... Did I, Dr. Miller? Yes, Dr. Simak. Has the body been cremated? Yes, this morning. Were my directions carried out? To the letter, Julius. The brain of Stephen Hamblin was, re was removed. I myself mixed the solution you gave me. I submerged the brain into the solution and removed the air from the container. Where is it now? In my laboratory. It's a perfect specimen. The best developed human brain I've ever seen, Doctor. Take me to it. Now? Yes, take me to it. But haven't you another lecture, Julius? Don't argue with me. Take me to your laboratory. Or must I go alone? Why, well, of course, Julius. Of course. This way. I have the second solution at the boiling point for you. Just as you ordered, Dr. Simek. Good, excellent. Yeah, the brain. Yeah. Just so, just so. Most excellent work, Carl. Most excellent. I'm glad you're satisfied. Do you wish to add the solution now? It should be done, I believe. Stephen Hamblin's brain must be preserved. This is one sure way of doing it. I must admit, I don't know what your method is. Certainly, I've never heard of it before. I wouldn't think a solution like that would preserve anything. It is a preservant no one has ever known of before. Are you ready, Doctor? Yes, quite ready. Yeah. You can insert this glass funnel through the rubber stopper on the container. I'll do it, Doctor. There. Now. You may extinguish the Bunsen burner, Dr. Miller. You want the second solution just below the boiling point. Yes. Very well. Is there anything I can do for you now? No, nothing. Stand back now. I'm about to add the hot solution to the other. There. Perfect. Yes, perfect. Is it necessary to remove the air from the chamber again? No, not now. 
Not now. I'll replace the punctured rubber stopper with a new one. Yes, do that, Dr. Miller. Uh, just a moment. Dr. Zemeck. Yes, Dr. Miller? This, this brain. Look at it. I have looked at it, Carl. Julius, that brain. It's alive. Doesn't that amaze you? Julius. It's a beautiful specimen, isn't it? Alive. It is actually alive. Oh, yes, indeed. It always has been. Julius, I'm an old man. I, I don't much relish your, your tricks. This is no trick, Carl. I assure you. Why, that brain is displaying a normal reaction you've often witnessed in viewing the human brain by means of X-ray. Yes, but this brain has no cranium. And the body, no body attached to it. Yet it lives, Carl. It lives. Only Stefan Hamblin's brain could do that. Live. After his death. Oh, it's a trick. The solution, it must be the solution. No, Carl. It is not the solution that causes the brain to live. I admit it could not live without the solution. Mere pickling would have destroyed it. But the solution will preserve the life, Carl. A life that has never left. Impossible. Utterly fantastic. No, my dear Dr. Miller, not at all. Not at all fantastic, nor impossible. But the brain cannot live outside the body. The human brain, no. But Stefan Hamlin's brain can. But, Doctor, Stefan was human. Was he? Wasn't he? No one knew Stephen Hamblin as well as I did, Carl. No one. Not even his parents. Oh, they knew he was different, yes. They knew he wasn't just an ordinary person. But they had no idea how truly extraordinary he actually was. I, I can't believe a human brain existing after the body has been cremated. Perhaps, my good friend, if I were to tell you his story... You would see the reason why such a thing could happen. Yes, perhaps. Sit down, Carl, sit down. Look deeply into the mystery you see there before you. The living brain of dead and cremated Stephen Hamblin. It was a most extraordinary brain, Carl. Yes, most. To know the mystery behind it, was to know Stephen Hamblin. I remember the first time I met him. A little place in Kansas, a small town called Emporia. Stephen was born there 37 years ago. I was 10 years old when I met him. He was nine. And yet he was crawling about from place to place on all fours, like a mere infant. He'd been examined by the best doctors in America. Taken to New York, to the West Coast, everywhere for observation. And each examination brought the same verdict. Perfectly capable of walking. But apparently unable to do so. Probably because of some mental handicap. A good enough excuse. A good enough diagnosis. Or the stupid. It may have been a mental handicap, yes. But if it's so, 
It was of Stephen Hamlin's own making. He had never spoken a word, uttered a single guttural sound in all those nine years. He'd never smiled, never frowned, never cried. Nine long years crawling on hands and knees, never uttering a sound. And yet, his vocal cords were pronounced perfectly normal, completely developed. And yet he had never spoken. Never. That first day I met him, I was put in charge of him while our elders attended a ball game. It was the first day I really knew Stephen Hamlin. It was the first day anyone ever knew him. When we had been left alone, I went off to a corner of the room by myself. I turned my back to that crawling bulk of a lout there on the floor and chose a book to help while away the time until my uncle should return for me. And suddenly, after a brief passage of time, Suddenly, there was a hand upon my shoulder. I probably should have been startled. I knew Stephen and I were alone in the house. But I wasn't startled. Instead, I turned my head and looked slowly around behind me. Looked up into the wide, innocent, staring eyes of Stephen Hamblin. He was standing there beside my chair, gazing down on me. Yes, down, yes, standing. Stephen Hamblin was standing. For a full minute, our gazes met, confused. I was too startled, too amazed, too puzzled to speak. But after that long, burning minute, he spoke. You don't like me, do you, Julius? I was too bewildered to answer. Stephen Hamblin had not only completely astonished me by standing, walking, but he had actually spoken to me. And I knew he had never spoken a single word to a single living soul before in all his nine years upon this earth. Yes, his walking, his talking completely mystified me. And yet there was something else. Something else. Yes, something besides mere walking. Something apart. Something far superior to mere talking. And then when he spoke again, I knew. I knew what it was. I said, Julius, you don't like me, do you? He talked with the voice of an adult. I was more speechless now than I'd ever been before. Stephen Hamlin, not only completely overwhelming me by a sudden and unheralded display of an ability to walk, but also causing my hair to stand on end by actually addressing me in perfect mannish English with the voice of an adult. After what seemed a compilation of eon upon eon, I found my voice. I... I have never had occasion to like you, I said. Nor, he said, have you ever had an occasion to dislike me? I admitted that was true. And then I said, 
Why is it you never walked until now? Never talked? To which he replied, I had no occasion to walk because there was no place interesting to which my walking could take me. And as for talking, so far I've never found anything interesting to talk about or anyone of enough interest to talk to. How long, I asked, have you been able to do both? I have had the ability to walk and to talk, he said, ever since the day I was born. After a while, they became acquainted. Long before the elders had returned joyously from watching their favorite ball club whitewash the visiting team, Stephen Hamblin and I were bosom pals. It was a friendship that was to exist until death did us part. After that, Stephen Hamblin stood upright on both legs, spoke like any other human. Did I say human? Forgive me. The only difference was that his was a fully developed mind, a fully developed voice, but a highly underdeveloped anatomy. I remember one day when Stefan and I were playing together on the school ground. I remember I was practicing high jumping at the time. Stefan was watching me. And all of a sudden, he jumped to his feet from where he had been sitting and stood staring wide-eyed. Then quickly he raised both hands before his face as though to shut out an evil, horrible sight. Suddenly there was a noise in the air. The noise of wheels upon rails of steel, spinning, speeding, racing wheels. Clickety-clack, 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 screaming as they went. And at that very instant, Stefan covered his eyes with his hands as though to blot out some unspeakable terror. Terrible, terrifying, resounding crash. As though a million planetoids had collided in the stratosphere and come crashing down around us like pellets of falling hailstones. When I looked at Stefan, he had slumped to the ground. I rushed to him. My heart leaped within me. I raised Stefan into my arms as I threw myself down beside him. When he opened his eyes, he asked quietly, was, was anyone saved? Anyone saved? I frowned. Tell me, Stefan, what in the name of heaven happened? He was quiet for a moment. Then he pulled himself away from me. Arose to his feet. He looked about him momentarily, on all sides. And then he spoke. Still softly. There's been a terrible accident. A train has just left the rails and plunged headlong into a hundred-foot gorge. The next day, our newspaper headlines screamed the details of the most destructive and death-dealing train accident ever to happen in the city of Paris. Yes, in France. It had happened at the very moment Stefan had covered his face in terror. And we had heard that pounding, awesome crash. The 
was not until several years later when we both entered Oxford College that I saw Stephen Hamblin again. At first he had avoided me, tried to pretend he didn't know me. But when I finally managed to get in a word with him and remind him of our first meeting, he told me he was glad to see me again. But he was extremely cold, almost insultingly reserved. And the very few times I saw him after that first day for the next year was between classes. He never partook in student activities. He never strolled the campus or climbed the cliffs or swam in the lake or enjoyed soccer or cricket with the rest of us. He was never seen with the rest of us. There were constant whispers about him and his strange, weird actions. Many whispers, most of them ugly and vicious and vile. It was four long years before I talked to Stephen Hamden again. Four years at Oxford. I heard those whispers about him all that time. I heard professors say he was the most amazing student of all times. Perfect grades in all subjects. A born doctor, a truly great scientist. A prospect for the world's greatest surgeon. And then, Stephen and I suddenly found ourselves to be classmates. Even then, I had difficulty in finding an opportunity to make speech with him. But after much effort, having exerted a great amount of patience, I finally cornered him. Oh, now, look here. Hamlet, I want to talk to you. Yes, Dr. Simek? Oh, please call me Julius, Stefan. I uh, think I want to talk to you, Julius. Good, excellent, my dear fellow. Where shall we go? My room should be as good a place as any. Suppose we go there. All right, Stefan, that's perfectly right with me. So we went to his room. There were no books there, none. But there were a few sheets of composition paper and pen and ink. I picked up several of the closely written sheets. It was the most profound and complete and exquisitely worded treatise in diseases of the human brain I had ever read in all my life. I remarked to Stefan that it was odd that he could pen such a masterpiece and yet had no books whatsoever for reference. He didn't smile when he answered. He simply said, I don't use books, Julius, because I don't need books. What I write, what I recite in my classes, comes not from anything I have ever read, not from anything I have ever been taught or have studied, but from somewhere deep within. You mean you're fully aware of all these facts without having studied or read or heard about them? Yes. You see, there is nothing I don't know. To me, the theories of the scientists and the theologians and the professors and the doctors are merely nothing more than the alphabet is to you. I have no interest in them whatsoever, save that they are convenient at times to know. And most of those profound theories, profound to you, understand, most of them are so terribly false, so astonishingly wrong and untrue and unsound, that they fail to interest me in the least. Yes? Stephen Hamlin was the fount of all the world's most intellectual knowledge. Everything that all mankind had ever known, the secrets of science, of medicine, of astronomy, of surgery, and numbers and mechanics, and all the millions and millions of other subject matters, were all embedded there. There, deep in that superhuman, unbelievable brain of his. After our graduation from Oxford, after we came here to medical college to study surgery... Stephen and I grew closer and closer together. Never did he open a textbook. 
Never did he study or concentrate upon the lectures of Europe's most eminent and distinguished scholarly instructors. And yet, his grades, his papers, his recitations were perfect in every degree. And then one day, Stephen Hamlin told me his secret. Poured forth his very soul at my feet and threw himself at my mercy. You think I'm odd. You call me different. You despised me the first day you met me because I didn't walk, didn't talk, despite my apparent ability to do so. Men everywhere have always shunned me. All my life I've been whispered about behind my back. All my life I've been lonely. My heart has been heavy with loneliness that no human words know, not even those words I can summon may ever describe. I'm different, yes. To me, complete universal knowledge has always been more an instinct than an, an acquirement. All my days I have had nothing, nothing to acquire, nothing for which to exist, nothing save one thing. Ever since the day I was born, I have been looking for my brother. Your brother, Stefan? I thought you were the only child. I am. I don't mean my worldly flesh and blood, brother. No, I mean something far greater than that, Julius. I've spent my life searching for my spiritual brother, as it were. And yet, not altogether spiritual, no. You see, Julius, I am not of this race. Startles you, doesn't it? But it's nonetheless true. I was born 10,000 years too soon. Yes, at least 10,000 years. Something went wrong in the plan of things. Some mix-up in regeneration. Some grave calamity in the routine of creation. For my kind, my race... It's not to be born into this world until thousands upon thousands of years hence. How I came to be, I have no answer, but I am, and so I shall be, till my span is ebbed. I had the complete knowledge of your universe, because according to the plan of things to come, all that is knowledge here with you now will be merely common inborn knowledge for the race in the future that is to be mine. That's why I need no books. That's why I'm different. Because the things you know are as mere nothingness to me. And because the things I know are 10,000 years beyond your understanding. I've brought you here, Dr. Julius Simek, to announce to you the end of your civilization. I found the means of destroying it at one fell swoop. The sooner to bring about the appearance of my race, the better for the world. I've sought the world over for my brother, the one like me, one of my race. But now I'm certain there is none, that I am alone. I can foretell everything. I know everything that is to come. All save one thing. I do not know my destiny, my own individual end. I do not have the power to foresee that. Or to foresee who will bring it about. And then... He outlined to me the most devastating, the most terrible, the most death-rendering plan of all history. For the dispellation of the present race from the face of the earth. Bitterly he outlined it. Poison dripping viciously from his every word. It was so simply done. So quickly. So painlessly. That its very program rendered unto me a nausea that I found almost impossible to overcome. I argued with him. Pleaded, begged. I reasoned, bullied, threatened. All to no avail. He had made his plans... He was determined that they should be carried out. If he were to be destroyed, too, he did not know. He could not foresee his destruction. 
nor his destroyer. His destroyer. No. He didn't know what his own end upon earth was to be. He could foresee all future things, save his own destruction, save his own destroyer. His destroyer. Someone had to destroy him. Someone had to. Someone. He was still babbling about that wicked, wretched plan of his, outlining it like a madman. I looked about me, cautiously at first. Then, desperately, when I realized he had forgotten my existence, I groped for a solution to this terrible, impending calamity. And just then, Stefan opened a desk drawer, withdrew a small compass. I caught a glimpse of a small gun in that drawer. I could see, even at that distance, that the gun was loaded. He was still talking about his plan, still bewailing the fact that he alone on this earth had the power possessed within him, still decrying the fact that he had searched the world over for his brother. Not his flesh and blood brother, but a brother of his kind, his race. He knew that were there another soul of his kind alive on earth, that soul could foretell the end. The destruction of Stephen Hamlin. Suddenly, he arose from his chair. He ordered me to come with him. He was about to work his havoc upon an unsuspecting world. And then, desperately, I acted. Quickly, I yanked open the drawer of his study desk, took out the gun. I leveled it at his head. He stood terrified a moment. And then... Then there was a pleading in his eyes. A pleading... Not for his life, but a pleading to spare him the damage a ripping bullet would do to his masterly brain. And in that instant, in that final desperate second before he lunged at me in an effort to save his life, there was recognition. The flash of an age-old suspicion at last fulfilled. And as I lowered my gun to a level with his heart, I knew that the pain within my heart at that moment would never be removed. Like lightning he made for me, speeding across the room, charging at me. I tried to stop him, tried to warn him, shouted at him. Keep back! No, keep back, Stephen! Keep back! He fell at my feet, kneeling, almost in supplication. He had not foreseen his end. He did not know. He could not know. For I was his brother. Tonight's original tale of dark fantasy, I Am Your Brother, written and directed by Scott Bishop and originating in the studios of WKY. Ben Morris was heard as Dr. Julius Semek, Lois Wright was Stephen Hamblin, and Muir Height played Dr. Carl Miller. 
Next Friday at this same time, the 30th original dark fantasy adventure, The Sleeping Death, created for you by Scott Bishop. Tom Paxton speaking. Dark fantasy comes to you each Friday night from Oklahoma City. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Stay tuned for Our Miss Brooks next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Eve Arden, starring as Our Miss Brooks and the episode School on Saturday. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay and luster cream shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. Once again, for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, many of the nation's schools commence a new semester on Monday. And Madison High School, where Our Miss Brooks teaches English, is one of them. Although the others usually dispense with classes on the last day or two of the old term, Madison did not. No, indeed. Our beloved principal, Osgood Conklin, saw to that. In fact, he was quite chagrined when a cloudburst last Friday kept almost all of the student body at home. Even members of the faculty didn't get down, except a handful of teachers, me. (laughs) Since Mr. Conklin didn't show up until quite late, I took it upon myself to dismiss the few soaked pupils who were floating around the halls. Saturday morning at breakfast, I discussed the situation with my landlady. And what did Mr. Conklin say when you told him you had canceled school for the day, Connie? He didn't say a word, Mrs. Davis, until he came down off the ceiling. Then he accused me of usurping his function as a principal and throwing a monkey wrench into his plan for getting the jump on the other schools. What sort of plan did he have, Connie? Well, he felt that schedules should be revised and classes assigned before the first day of the new semester. Hence, we have all been invited to appear at school today. But this is Saturday, Connie. Mr. Conklin hasn't the authority to make anybody come to school. He doesn't make anybody come. He's put it on a voluntary basis. For both the student body and the faculty, it's strictly optional. Really? Of course. Come or die. (laughs) I can't understand some of you teachers, Connie. Why do you let Mr. Conklin drive you this way? What are you all? A bunch of, of geese? I don't know about the others, but don't be surprised if some morning you find a feather by my empty bed. (laughs) You see, Mrs. Davis, I've been in so much trouble with Mr. Conklin during the past term, I don't dare start the new one off on the wrong foot. Oh, that's probably Walter Denton. He's giving down to school. Come in, Walter. It certainly is nice of Walter to call for you this morning. Yes, it is, considering that I made it quite clear to him that his driving me was strictly optional. Really? Of course. Be here or flunk. Hi, Mrs. Davis And to you, most revered and admired of all local educators I bow deeply from the waist Thank you, and get your head out of the milk pitcher (laughs) Sit down, Walter, I'll pour you a glass Ah, thanks Would you like something else, Walter? Uh, What have you got? Oh, uh, cereal, eggs, sausage, bacon, toast That'll be fine Obviously, you haven't had anything to eat since breakfast. Oh, that's right, Miss Brooks. Over an hour ago. <laughs> a growing boy should eat a lot, especially if you want to grow up and be big and strong like Hopalong Cassidy. If Hopalong Cassidy ate like Walter, he'd never make it to the saddle. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> Oh, 
and fix a nice plate for you, Walter. <clears throat> oh, uh, how do you take your eggs? Four in the mouth and six intravenously. <laughs> Gosh, Miss Brooks, you make me sound like a pig. Uh, just scramble a few with some bacon and sausages, Mrs. Davis, please. All right, dear. Well, this is great. What better way to start off the day than a resounding second breakfast with my favorite school teacher? For a kid who's going to school on Saturday, you sound pretty chipper, Walter. Ah, but that's where you're wrong, Miss Brooks. I'm not going to school today. None of the students are. We held a mass meeting last night and decided that the only course to pursue was open rebellion. What? The issues are clear, Miss Brooks. If we let old Marblehead haul us into school today... Now, just a minute, Walter. I won't have you referring to the principal of our school in such a disrespectful manner. I'm sorry, Miss Brooks, but... Well, don't you see, if we submit to his demand that we attend school on Saturday, what's to prevent him from dragging us down on Sunday? Or even holidays? Oh, I can just picture it. Christmas weekend comes. Everybody's off having fun. But our principal decrees that we must spend every day of our vacation in school. Old Marblehead wouldn't dare. <laughs> Don't you worry, Miss Brooks. Even though we all recognize this for the tyranny that it is, it is a short-lived tyranny. Our spokesman elected unanimously at last night's meeting, old C to that. Spokesman? Whom did you elect? Let me be the first to congratulate you. <laughs> Logical choice, may I add, to slay the tyrant. Now, wait a second, Walter. It just happens that I didn't renew my card in the Tyrant Slayers Union. <laughs> I'm in enough hot water now for canceling school yesterday. Well, that was different. It was an emergency. The plus which nobody was there anyway. But don't worry about it now. We can plan our campaign on the way down to school. I thought you said you weren't going. Of course I'm going. I'm in charge of the picket line. <laughs> As one of the organizers of this rebellion, it's up to me to see that the protest meeting this morning goes off without a flaw. Are you sure you've got the eyebrows for this kind of work? <laughs> oh, we've got a great program lined up, Miss Brooks. Some of the kids are bringing a dummy down so we can hang Mr. Conklin in effigy. But, Walter, that's a pretty violent way of protesting. Oh, it'll all be in fun. Sort of. <laughs> well, even Mr. Conklin's daughter Harriet's on our side. So, here's the plan, Miss Brooks. First, we're going to have one last talk with Mr. Conklin. Then we're going to go out and hang the dummy. Well, what do you think of the scheme? It's a dandy, Walter. Of course, it would be more effective if you had one last talk with the dummy and then went out... Oh, there I go with that wishful thinking. <laughs> For a group who decided not to come to school today, there's quite a crowd on the campus. I wonder where Stretch Snodgrass is. Uh, he's supposed to carry the dummy over to the flagpole. As Madison's star athlete, he deserves the honor, but let me offer a word of caution, Walter. Uh, what's that, Miss Brooks? Well, I don't want to cast any aspersions on Stretch's mentality. But if he's carrying the dummy, be very careful who you string up. <laughs> Stretch. Oh, hi, Walter. Hello, Miss Brooks. Hello, Stretch. I made up a slogan for one of the picket signs, Walter, but I'm afraid it might be a teeny-weeny bit disrespectful. Want to hear it? Sure. How does it go? It goes, Mr. Conklin is very unfair. I'm going to wash that guy right out of my hair. <laughs> I don't think a slogan like that's too disrespectful to you, Miss Brooks. Not if you want to finish your education in another part of the state. <laughs> well, the real fun will come later, Miss Brooks. We're going to hang Mr. Conklin in a figgy. <laughs> 
what? In a figgy. Will he fit in a figgy? <laughs> no, he means in effigy, Miss Brooks. Oh, I kind of liked it the other way. Yeah, I better get the thing now. I'll see you later, Miss Brooks. Bye, Walter. Uh, so long, pal. Well, everything's rolling right along. Uh, let's see if Mr. Conklin got here yet. Hello, Miss Brooks. Walter? Well, I just talked to Daddy, and he's livid. He blames you for the entire insurrection, Miss Brooks. Me? I tried to reason with him. I even told him that you weren't present when we named you our spokesman. Although it was a foregone conclusion that you'd accept the honor with great enthusiasm. That's getting me off the hook. (laughs) Daddy says if you hadn't canceled school yesterday, this wouldn't have happened. You're in an awful spot. Gosh, I didn't mean to get you into such a jam, Miss Brooks. Well, I'm in it, and it's up to me to get out of it. Please don't think I'm a Benedict Arnold, but I'd better get up on the school steps and have a little talk with some of these strikers. Well, it probably won't do any good, but I can't blame you for trying. Students! Uh, Boys and girls, I'd like to talk to you for just a moment. Quiet, please. Thank you. Now, I'm sure you all have as much pride in your school as any members of the faculty have, or as its principal, Mr. Conklin, has. Uh, Please, please, I'm just trying to tell you that by working for a few hours today, we can be prepared to launch our new semester on Monday with a minimum of confusion, thus assuring us of a better start toward that degree of scholastic excellence which has always prevailed at Madison High. Remember, students, education is your sacred heritage, your guaranteed right under the Constitution, as well as the Bill of Rights, which ensures us all of the benefits and privileges which every American has come to feel. And so, Miss Brooks, I hold you personally responsible for the fact that these malcontents are not in their classrooms yet. But, Mr. Conklin, I really tried to... Uh, excuse me. This is Osgood Conklin's office. Mr. Conklin himself speaking. Hello, Conklin. This is Mr. Stone at the Board of Education. Oh, oh, hello, Mr. Stone. How's everything? I have no time for chit-chat. A rather disturbing rumor has reached me to the effect that you've summoned your student body to school today. My student body? You realize, of course, that such an action on your part without sanction from the board would constitute a breach of authority that could lead to your immediate dismissal? Uh, uh, Yes, yes, of course. Now, I can't for the life of me imagine where these ridiculous rumors begin. Why, I'm here all alone. Not another soul in the office. (laughs) Bless you. Shut up! I'm I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My uh, cat has a cold. Uh, But uh, about that rumor... The only reason I'm in the office is to get out some letters. Good, good. I thought you had better sense than to do anything that autocratic. Oh, uh, by the way, Osgood, I'll be in your neighborhood in a little while. Perhaps I'll drop in to discuss some board matters with you. Fine, Mr. Stone. That'll be just grand. I'll look forward to seeing you. Very well. Goodbye, Osgood. Goodbye, Mr. Stone. Well, Miss Brooks, sometimes everything happens for the best. Because of you, no child has set foot in this building as yet. Is that right? I guess not, Mr. Conklin, but if you'll just wait I, until I'll, I... Can... I'll be frank with you, Miss Brooks. If they had come in, it could have meant my dismissal. I don't understand Mr. Stone's attitude, but 
Well, go out to your youthful charges and inform them that there is no school today. Oh, fine, Mr. Conklin. You did it, Miss Brooks. I didn't think you could do it, but you did it. What are you talking about, Denton? Oh, she was wonderful, Mr. Conklin. Miss Brooks made a speech a few minutes ago that'll go down in Madison's history. Yes, sir, every student is in his or her classroom right now. (laughs) And believe me, Mr. Conklin, wild horses couldn't drag them out of this school today. (laughs) Well, Miss Brooks? (laughs) You heard the boy. Thanks to your speech, wild horses couldn't drag them out of school today. And now, young woman, may I ask what you propose to do? Step aside, Mr. Conklin. I told Walter Denton to corral the students and herd them into the cafeteria. While I was waiting for them to assemble, I corralled Mr. Boynton and herded him into a corner table. Over a cup of coffee, I told him of Mr. Conklin's dilemma. As usual, Mr. Boynton was extremely sympathetic. So you see, if these kids don't go home at once, Mr. Conklin can get in big trouble with the board. Well, that's his worry. Oh, he should have known better than to ask students to come to school on Saturday let alone the faculty. I wish he would let alone the faculty. (laughs) But we're in it now, at least I am, up to our necks, at least my neck. Fine English teacher. (laughs) I I don't like to see you distressed about it. Look, when we do leave here, how about going someplace, just the two of us? What sort of place did you have in mind, Mr. Boynton? Well, I don't know. It's a date. (laughs) (laughs) I... I thought maybe you'd enjoy the the zoo again today. I understand they've got a yak over there that's over 60 years old. Honestly? Yeah. That's pretty old for a yak, you know. Oh, I know. (laughs) Then old yaks are so much more fun than young yaks, don't you think? (laughs) Or don't you care? I know I don't. Most of the kids in, Miss Brooks. Oh, hi, Mr. Boynton. Oh, hello, Walter. I'll hold this chair for you, Miss Brooks. Go ahead. Get up on it and make your speech. Thanks, Walter. Uh, students, attention, please. I've called you here for some very good news. You don't have to stay in school today. Oh, but Miss Brooks, after your speech of this morning, we want to stay. Don't you believe it. This, after all, is Saturday, a holiday. One to which you are not only entitled by law, but which is guaranteed to you by the Constitution. <laughs> by the Bill of Rights and every other document so carefully prepared to safeguard the interest of you, the future leaders of our great Hello? Hello, Osgood. This is Mr. Stone. I'm afraid I won't be able to drop in on you today after all. My wife's been driving my car all week, and it's pretty well shot. Yes. Yes, I've seen her. Your, your, your car, that is. Your car. Uh, I'm sorry you can't drop in, though, Mr. Stone, but when you do pay us a visit, you'll find as smooth a running educational operation as there is in this country. I'm sure of it, Osgood. Well, goodbye for now. Goodbye, sir, and thanks for calling. Uh, come in. It's me, Mr. Conklin. I've told the students that they can go home any time they want to. What? Have they left yet? 
No, sir. Most of them are still in the cafeteria, but they're... They're going to pay for this morning's protest meeting. Mr. Stone isn't coming down after all. So you can just tell those recalcitrant mischief makers that they're staying here today until 4 p.m. But, Mr. Conklin, I can't make another speech. It's an order, Miss Brooks. Yes, Miss... And so by working for a few hours today, we can be assured of a better start toward that degree of scholastic excellence which has always prevailed at Madison High. Remember, students, education is your sacred heritage. Your guaranteed right under the Constitution, as well as the Bill of Rights, which ensures us all the benefits and privileges which every Stretch, I don't like to cross Miss Brooks up, but we just got to get out of school today. Well, we're all on detention, Walter. We got to stay till 4 p.m. What makes me mad, we didn't even get to burn Mr. Conklin in a figgy. <laughs> yeah, I know it's stretching. Hey, wait a minute. You just gave me an idea. Suppose we had a fire drill. Then when we all ran out of school, we could just forget to stop running until we got home. Yeah, but the control for the fire alarm bell is in Mr. Conklin's office. And he ain't going to ring it for no reason. Then let's give him a reason. You mean start a fire? No, no, not a real fire stretch. A fake one. We can get some dry ice in the cafeteria kitchen and drop it in a bucket of water. Oh, that makes the most beautiful smoke you ever saw. And then we just fan it under old Marblehead's door until it fills his office. Then he comes out of his door and hits us with the bucket. No, no, he doesn't. We remove the screws from his doorknob from the outside. And then when he tries to open the door, the knob comes away in his hand, and Conklin falls right on his conk. Boy, you should get a scholarship. So, Miss Brooks, you've informed the student body that they're all under detention until four? Yes, sir, I did. But suppose Mr. Stone does come over and discovers that you're keeping us all in school on a holiday. Ah, but he won't, Miss Brooks. He has no way to get here. His car broke down. Suppose he decided to walk over. Walk over? That's ridiculous. Well, hello, Miss Conklin. Mr. Stone. <laughs> I decided to walk over. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Stone. How are you? Fine, thanks, Miss Brooks. I uh, would have been here sooner, Osgood, but I dozed off for a few minutes in the park. I stopped to rest on my favorite bench, the one under Paul Revere's statue. Uh, that is an extremely comfortable bench. Such nice, soft slats. <laughs> uh, tell me, Miss Brooks, uh, what brought you to Old Madison today? Old Mr. Conklin. Uh, that is, Mr. Conklin asked me to type some letters for him. Uh, yes, yes, that's it. She's typing some letters for me. But, uh, I don't see any typewriter in here? Uh, well, it's in the next room. In the next room? I have very long arms. <laughs> uh, but now that we've finished, Mr. Conklin, why don't you drive Mr. Stone home instead of remaining in this stuffy old, empty old school? A splendid idea. Come along, Mr. And Stone. Not so fast, Look. Osgood. There are several things... That, uh, what's that? Uh, there must be someone loitering in the hall. Impossible. There's no one in school today. But I'd swear I... I just saw that doorknob turning. Turning into what? <laughs> and, and what's that swirling in under the door? Oh, that's nothing but smoke. Yes, that, that's all it is. Just smoke. Oh, of course. That's all it is. Smoke. 
Smoke! <laughs> Good heavens, the school's on fire. Let's get out of here. Follow me. Oh! Don't knock him away in his hand. Oh, let me help you up, Mr. Stone. Mr. Stone? He fell on the back of his head, Mr. Conklin. He's unconscious. Quick, quick, Miss Brooks. Crawl through the window and run around and open the door from the outside. I'll try to revive Mr. Stone. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Smoke's getting pretty thick in here. I can hardly see you, Miss Brooks. I can't see you at all, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> I never could. <laughs> Gosh, Waller, we've been fanning smoke under that door for five minutes now, and he ain't rung the fire alarm yet. Relax, Stretch. With the fog he's in, it'll take him a little while to notice the smoke. You don't think Mr. Conklin has become expiexicated, do you? <laughs> no, that would be too much to hope for. But if he is expiexicated, maybe we ought to open the door and haul him out of there. Please, let's not spoil a perfectly good expiexication. <laughs> Miss Brooks! We're cooked. Oh, it's not a real fire, Miss Brooks. It's just... Dry ice and water, see? That we were trying to get Mr. Conklin to ring the fire alarm so we could escape from school in the confusion. Oh, there's a lot you can do on Saturday on the outside. Gosh, Miss Brooks, now that you caught us, what are you going to do? Hand me that newspaper. I'll fan the smoke for a while. <laughs> Gee, you're a swell sport, Miss Brooks. You think you'll ring the alarm pretty soon? Maybe he needs a little encouragement. Keep up your courage, Mr. Conklin. I'm fighting my way through the flames. Eyes on old marble head. Go ahead, Miss Brooks. Scare him some more. I'm trying to reach you, Mr. Conklin, but the heat is terrific. Perhaps I could get you a nice, cool lemonade, Miss Brooks. <laughs> oh, not right now, thanks. I've got to keep fanning this dry ice and. Duh! <laughs> Now, Miss Brooks, if you're quite finished fighting your way through the flames... You got here in the nick of time, Mr. Conklin. I just put the fire out. Yeah, me too. Well, I better be getting back to my classroom now. Yeah, me too. And where you are, you culprits. Why, Mr. Conklin, you should thank these boys for what they've done. Thank them? Certainly. When Walter and Stretch realized the trouble you'd get into with Mr. Stone, they took this means of detaining him until the students were cleared out. Sure. As long as Mr. Stone is locked in there, you're safe. Hand me that newspaper. I'll fan the smoke for a while. Here you are, Mr. Conklin. Pour some more water on that dry ice, Snodgrass. You, Denton, see that all the classrooms are emptied and report back to me. Yes, sir. I'll clear them out nothing flat. <laughs> Mr. Stone will have to get up pretty early in the morning to outsmart old Marblehead. How's the Conklin? I don't think you're getting enough smoke under the door, Mr. Conklin. Oh, well, this newspaper's too flexible. Get me something firmer to fan the smoke with. Perhaps you'd like to use my hat, Mr. Conklin? <laughs> thank you, Mr. Stone, thank you. That should work much better than this... Thank you, Mr. Stone! Mr. Conklin, I will discuss this matter with you privately in your office. But, Mr. Stone... Follow me, sir. Oh! Mr. Stone! The door lamp came away in his hand again. Mr. Stone, say something. He's unconscious. Miss Brooks, what do I do now? In an emergency like this, there's only one thing to do. Run, do not walk to the nearest employment agency. <laughs> And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, after Mr. Stone knocked himself out for the second time, I did some pretty fast thinking and came up with a desperation tactic. 
Recalling his remark that he had dozed on a park bench, I enlisted the aid of Mr. Boynton, and we hauled the head of the board over to the statue of Paul Revere. Oh, he's still out cold, Miss Brooks. I'll try the smelling salts again. There. Put them away, Mr. Boynton. He's coming, too. Wake up, Mr. Stone. Wake up. What's that? Oh, Miss Brooks. About that fire. If you'll step into Mr. Conklin's office... Mr. Conklin's office? Where is it? Good heavens, the school is burned down. School? What school? Now, listen, Miss Brooks, when I first saw you today... Today? Why, I haven't seen you in two weeks, Mr. Stone. Since there was no school today, Mr. Boynton and I decided to stroll through the park. Uh, yes, sir, and when we saw you dozing, we thought we'd better awaken you before you rolled off that bench. Bench? What? Oh, I do remember stopping your rest, but I... Oh, what a nightmare I've just had. <laughs> Maybe you'd better go home and get some real rest, Mr. Stone. Yeah, excellent suggestion. I'll go right home and I... Wait a minute. Uh, what's the matter? How did I get this doorknob in my hand? <laughs> doorknob? Oh, that. That must have fallen from Paul Revere's statue. <laughs> from Paul Revere's statue? Of course. With the British coming, he was in an awful rush. <laughs> Next week, turn into another R.M.S. Brooks show brought to you by Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. R.M.S. Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, directed by Al Lewis with music by Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, Bill Johnstone, and Leonard Smith. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North, the exciting, fun-packed adventures of an amateur detective and his beautiful wife. Tune in Tuesday evening over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Lights Out, followed by Fibber McGee and Molly. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.